In this episode, I am here with uh, Matt, uh, Tom, and John, myself, Paul, and we're gathering together at the uh, International Conference on Mission. And in this discussion, we it's a wide-ranging discussion, uh, basically asking the question, uh, who came closer to being a follower of Christ, Mahatma Gandhi or John Calvin? Uh, the question is is the the foundation or the beginning rather of a of a wide ranging conversation, uh, including uh, Bernard Lonergan, uh, the work of Rene Girard, um, the ideas of Tolstoy. Martin Luther King Jr. It's a wide-ranging discussion with a fairly narrow focus. Uh, And Tom begins here uh, describing then uh, his understanding of the role of God. Um, You know, he didn't participate in confession, baptism, um, communion, and, you know, those are all things that talk about being in Christ. And so, also, obviously, I preached on Romans six for a year, so it's fairly important to me. Um, and that uh, that sort of sin and being set free of that sin, um, you know, Gandhi, in some ways, wasn't, and India wasn't. And so, what kind of a difference if he was really proclaiming Christ? crucified and resurrected as well as doing the things of Christ what kind of change could have been made in India, because I'm assuming and again, I, maybe you know that he probably didn't go along with the resurrection and if you don't go along with the resurrection then that's that's a fairly big problem too as for me <laughs> and church history yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I guess my well, ten- in my tendency was, I, I can I'm kind of with all of you, <laughs> and I can understand. In other words, that what what a what is being described, and I think it's in a Vatican too sense and a Lonerganian sense, and that is that we would in no way want to limit delimit the grace of God. That in the Old Testament, the idea is that you know the Jews thought sometimes that God was only working with them and God makes it clear no I'm working with all peoples everywhere and so who could if if all goodness is God's goodness all truth is God's truth and so why try to make of somebody like Gandhi say well you know try to in some way uh, take away from the significance of what he did uh, by you know, in some way saying, well, it was not a true participation in the grace of God. Who's to say that it wasn't? Yeah, I mean, who was the better Christian, Gandhi or John Calvin? Uh, I, I get confused with Calvin, but he, I know it was Michael Servetus, who, as I understand it, Calvin asked him to critique uh, the institutes. The institutes, and he turned them into him, and um, and as a result, Calvin. And of course, when you say Calvin, it's never directly 
I mean, it's not just John Calvin, it's the, the city council or whatever it was. And the folks in Geneva. Yes, yeah. whoever it was in Geneva. But it, but it really was John Calvin, mm -hmm. I think, uh, who was the driving force behind that. You know, he goes and visits Michael Servetus in prison and tries to have him recant and all of this. But of course, at the same time, and I'm assuming that John Calvin participates in this, they decide to burn him at the stake and they used green wood so that it would be an especially slow and painful death. It's perverse. So you have a good Christian setting another Christian on fire because he disagrees with his you know, views. Uh, and then you've got someone like a, a, a Gandhi. And I'm not, I don't claim to understand, you know, but to me it's just, it's, it's kind of a, I'm just describing the problem. It's like, you know, you have someone who clearly, everyone would say, oh, well, clearly, you know, Calvin was this great Christian figure, you know. But then you have someone like Gandhi who's a Hindu, who clearly isn't, you know, um, I guess a Christian by our, by what we would, you know, qualify a Christian as, though he himself identifies as he, a Christian. He calls himself a Christian. Yeah. He's, he's reading Tolstoy. He identifies with Tolstoy's Christianity. Yeah. Uh, and he's not setting people on fire. As a matter of fact, he's laying down his life, his life. You know, he's renouncing. That's the thing that's so hard to understand about this. And you can kind of substitute, you know, uh, all sorts of different names, you know, in Calvin's place. That everyone would just say, oh, well, these were great, you know, Christians, you know, fathers, whatever else. And it's like, okay. But all I know is, is that Gandhi had, you know, renounced what he said. You know, he says that he renounces the world systems, uh, that he really believes that the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of God. It is what it would mean to institute the kingdom of God, to live out then, uh, you know, loving your enemies, not resisting evil with force. Yeah, I, I was reminded of a chapter out of a book, and I think it's in um, Trinity in History by Robert, Father Robert Doran, who's a Lonergan specialist, and he's got a chapter where he's dealing with um, both Lonergan and Rene Girard together, and what they're talking about specifically is how the law of the cross, which is a Lonerganian phrase, the law of the cross for Lonergan is that one would lay down your life for another. So it's a, it's a pacifistic, it's peaceable, it's being willing to sacrifice yourself for the good of someone else. Um, and how that transforms communities. And so with Gerard, of course, you have the idea that in some way the cross is taking away, this, or revealing the scapegoating mechanism, uh, that Jesus is showing how societies have been formed, and that is by scapegoating an individual, killing that individual, and then mythologizing the way that happened into some type of sacrificial religion that then carries on, and in some ways delimits that violence. And uh, Lonergan is saying that uh, one aspect of the atonement or what the cross is doing is that in and through belief in the law of the cross so that it's revealing this uh, key I mean we he uses the phrase law but it's um, it's part of the nature of God who God is by revealing God to us in the cross in some ways or actually throughout Jesus whole life exemplifies the law of the cross so it's not limited in a Lutheran sense just to what's happening there um, that that transforms whole communities into 
uh, a community for God where their chief concern becomes the love of God in their own lives and how to show that love to others. And he isn't, I mean, I don't know, it's, a, it's hard to understand where Lonergan exactly is going with this in terms of its ramifications. Is this just, you know, anybody can get the law of the cross and this works, or is it something that only takes place in the church? But uh, that's probably not, I mean, it is pertinent to this discussion, but I think we can allow ourselves to live in the tension a little bit between being able to define that, and perhaps that's why uh, people are still arguing over what Lonergan meant, because he may not have been clear on, you know, how that, where he lands on that issue specifically. So you take somebody like Gandhi, uh, he may not have gotten the resurrection, he may not have really understood the incarnation, he may not have ever understood what the church really is, but he seems to have understood this key tenet of Christianity, and it seems to also be crucial to the, it seems to be crucial to all those other doctrines, the incarnation, the atonement, uh, what the church is. And so what's so powerful maybe about somebody like Gandhi is even just the little bit of Christianity that he understood was so transformative for him and uh, just the community in India. 400 million yeah. Indians. Giant community. So it's not, um, obviously it's not as salvific as if he had been in the church. We're just talking about practical salvation in the sense that uh, we're being saved from sin now. Uh, well, yeah, it wasn't as salvific as maybe it could have been, but another way of looking at it is just say, wow, how powerful Christianity is, or how powerful is the cross in the life of Christ. Yeah, but I mean, to me, like where the where the problem is, is it's like, okay, it might not have been as salvific, but here's a guy who was a Hindu who, in fact, did take the vow mm-hmm. of poverty. He did take the vow of chastity. Yeah. He was nonviolent. He, he may have taken the vow of chastity. Well, he definitely took the vow of chastity, whether he upheld it or, or was successful in it. Well, yeah, he took the vow. But. But, but he definitely, you know, with his wife and everything, you know. And I think that, so, in his reading of Tolstoy, though, and have, have you guys ever done Tolstoy? Have you ever read, like, My, My Religion or the Kingdom of God is Within You? Or I've read his Gospels. Okay, yeah. I mean, and it's, I, I was, it was awesome. I mean, my first exposure to him, I was like, this is, he, and now, he, I think that Tolstoy is thoroughly sort of a modern, a modernist in some senses, you know, and he himself sort of, you know, um, seems to kind of, you know, reject the resurrection and things like that on modernist terms, I, I think. But whenever he, he starts dealing with uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and even, you know, he says that, you know, the church has hidden the true Jesus you know, uh, from from the masses, and the reason why they've done it is to keep their power and to keep their money, and they they've been willing to do violence to do it. So that's why they've hidden the Sermon on the Mount. But Tolstoy even goes so far as to say that, you know, whenever Jesus says "Judge not," that he literally he's not just talking about sort of a, you know, sort of you know making some pronouncement in your heart about your neighbor. He's saying no. He's talking about like punitive criminal justice. That Jesus is saying. He's already said in the Sermon on the Mount, "Forgive your, forgive your, you know the, the the and so that Christians aren't to participate in in systems that would then pass judgment and condemnation upon criminals, but are to instead forgive and to love your enemies and to not resist evil with force and things like this." So he's taking it so seriously that it's almost kind of shocking. And I, I'm not claiming that I could ever embody even when that what he what he's explaining, but I think what's key is though is that Gandhi does read Jesus through Tolstoy and says. I'm going to actually do it. I'm going to forgive. 
you know, I'm going to command, you know, uh, the people who would follow me to, to, to this sort of radical forgiveness that Jesus is calling his, his followers to. You know, um, and it's kind of amazing that this, that this guy would, would do, you know, the things that Jesus commanded in a, in a, in a way that certainly I'm not, I haven't been able to, you know, and that's the thing that's confusing, guys, about it for me, is, is that, like, well, you know, I've, I've been baptized, I take the Lord's Supper, you know, and, you know, and so you were talking earlier about what's more salvific or, or, or whatever, but it's like, I, I can't claim to, to be, you know, um, embodying the type of radical love and renouncing of the world that this Hindu was able to, who was an intellectual and who was a, certainly, you know, taking the taking the Sermon on the Mount and, and, and Christianity seriously, uh, at least from an ethical doubt. I bet I was real surprised. I was reading George Lindbeck recently, who, of course, initially is very he he cites himself Hauerwas, and he said, "Well, I I was in total agreement with Stanley Hauerwas, and I think for for the most part he is." But then he kind of backtracks a minute, and he says, well, wait a minute. You know, when part of what is being rejected in Samadhi Kaur was this idea of a civil religion. or a, Yeah, but he says, but isn't a, a, a society better off at least having a kind of Christian morality that a civil religion, very much like we have in American evangelicalism, is at least a step above... Uh, a kind of complete loss of any kind of religious unless it's unleashing the demonic in a Kierkegaardian in a Kierkegaardian sense where it's like you have the civil religion that you know that's the dangerous thing about it and that's what Tolstoy's saying even the Eastern Orthodox you know church well the Russian the Russian Orthodox yeah so uh, well context for Tolstoy it's just interesting for this discussion because it actually brings it closer to us is the Russian Orthodox Church since the time of Peter the Great, so we're talking like late 17th, early 18th century. He dies, I believe, in the 1720s. Uh, Anyway, he had abolished the Patriarch of Moscow and had established a synod run by the state. So what you're getting in the Russian Orthodox Church of Tolstoy's day is actually more similar to Protestant, I uh, think, like uh, a state church, say, in Denmark, or a state mm-hmm. church in some northern European country, yeah. than what is normally the case in Orthodoxy. So that the Russian uh, Orthodoxy that he's rejecting yeah. is is, in fact, more Constantinian. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, actually, so they would probably object to that and say, well, under Constantine, there was actually more separation between church and state than there is under the Russian model of that time, under the great synod that they had. Well, I mean, that's, the, that's the, what kind of Yoder's point with Constantinianism, that actually Constantinianism is not as bad under Constantine as it becomes under the... Well, that's right, that's right. So, uh, and Yoder has a point on this that I was going to bring up too. I think you both are, are right that uh, Lindbeck has a valid point, but at the same time, we what is dangerous is to mistake 
what may be better than something else as true Christianity, and that's the demonic being unleashed. So whenever you start seeing state civic religion, you say, yeah, that's a good model for Christianity, rather than just, well, that's better than perhaps something else, some other form of violent uh, state religion. And uh, Yoder's point is that as Christians, we are the gadfly, so we're a nuisance or we're an annoyance. And we should be a nuisance and an annoyance to our own communities, the societies that we live in. And that will challenge them. And, you know, you can think of Jesus' own words at this point. It it's a, provides a, a separation, and that's either the society or the state can choose to reject what the Christians are doing and entrench themselves more and more in some form of violent type of sin, or they can move a little bit closer to that Christian position because it makes them look better. So the Christians are making them look bad so they can move a little bit closer to a Christian position. Not that it ever becomes Christianity. But it's better than than not. But Yoder is careful in saying this isn't the point of Christianity. So under Protestant uh, liberalism, especially in Germany, you're reading people like uh, Ritschel and von Harnack and Hermann, uh, they're saying, they're, they've flattened out Christian metaphysics, theological metaphysics, to the point where they're saying, well, that is that is the kingdom of God. That the church would be so influential in society that it's building a society that's like the kingdom of God, and that's about the best that we can hope for. And, you know, so that is a very modernistic picture, whereas I think what Yoder is actually, or what Yoder could be taken to be saying, is that's not the church's objective, that's just an effect, and it's a it's a positive effect either way. Because even when nations completely reject the church, usually that's going to bring about the downfall of that nation one way or another. And you know sometimes that's bloody and violent, but that's because that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the powers and the principalities. And I think that that's what I think, at least for Gandhi, that that's what he got through Tolstoy is that Tolstoy is saying that. Whatever you want to call it, a Christian anarchy or whatever it is, but 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 Tolstoy is saying that hey, you guys imagine that these existing structures that you know civilization is founded upon are actually you know good, and like Jesus is saying, no, you, you know, you really do think that violence is the, is the way that this is the way our civilizations are, are founded and, and and operate, and Jesus is saying that this that's not um, that's not true. And so you're going to have guys like Dr. King, Gandhi, who actually take Jesus at his word whenever he says, well, you know, you heard it was said, you know, to do it this way, but I tell you, mm-hmm. you know, to love your enemy, to not resist evil with force. So that is to, it totally undermines, you know, the Jesus' whole teaching on, you know, renouncing, yeah. uh, you know, the world and, and, and personal wealth and all these different things, which I don't, we can talk about that too, but it just totally undermines any sort of civil, for sure, civil, you know, uh, uh, religion, it's like you can't do a nation state with Jesus' teaching. You just can't. It's impossible. And so the equation that you set up is that a Christian America is the unleashing of the demonic and a little brown Hindu man is the true Christian of the 20th century. That's what Dr. King says. <laughs> and then, you know, and then he says, he says, I know it's ironic, you know, that, that a Hindu man is, is the most, you know, Christian, uh, or the best Christian of the 20th century. 
But he says that, but let me just, I'll show you from scripture that Jesus says, I have others that aren't of this fold, um, I, and that you'll do greater works than I did, and that, you know, and King says that Jesus, in essence, is saying there that there, there are those who uh, have caught, you know, the spirit of Christ, who aren't attached to the institutional church, and who then are actually taking, you know, the ethics that is set forth by Jesus seriously, so seriously that, you know, that, that Gandhi is going to, on multiple occasions, be willing to lay down his life for, for his friends. And I mean, Jesus himself says, you know, there is no greater love than, than you would lay down your life for your, for your friends, you know? And so I'm just trying to figure out, okay, well, I have been baptized. I take this, you know, the Lord's Supper every week. And I haven't renounced the world. I haven't renounced my wealth. I haven't, you know, mm-hmm. I, you know, and, it's, and I'm still on the road, just like you guys are. But I do, though. I, there is that little sort of fundamentalist corner of my heart that says, "Well, wait a second. Yeah, but you have to, you know. Jesus said, you know, no man comes to the Father but through Him. But I think, yeah, but that's because Jesus is the judge. That's how I read that passage: is that Jesus is qualified to to make that sort of judgment because He was Himself was a man. And that's certainly the basis of the judgment of the New Testament. It's a, a judgment based upon deeds. Have you done these things? And those who have done them are accepted into the kingdom. Those who have not done them are rejected. I mean, how much sense would it make? I mean, just from a purely you know, you know, rational standpoint, like to me, it just wouldn't make sense for Jesus to say something like, you know, Gandhi, you, I, you know, i got to admit, you know, you did... A whole lot of the he stuff did that real I good. He did real good, <laughs> but here's the thing. You, you know what I'm saying? It's like you did real good. You really spent your life laying your life down, taking up your cross, however, whatever metaphor you know you want to use. You know, fasting, renouncing, yeah, uh, you know, teaching peace. Um, but since you weren't baptized, since you weren't you know what I'm saying? Like, dude. In other words, like, dude. I don't want to call it a technicality. All right, I'm not trying to go there. You didn't. It. You didn't believe enough. You did not have faith, and therefore, sorry. It just doesn't make sense. Of course, he had faith. And if you read Gandhi, if you read now, it's like, but faith in what? Did he have faith in you know in the incarnate Jesus has given to us? You know, through the, like the, the the fathers or whatever. Like, no, but that's part of Tolstoy's point too. Is that he's saying that the church, you know, and especially because they're not. And this is James Cone. You know, James Cone says, "Hey, the fathers at the Council of Nicaea, they're asking questions that like the black man would never. We don't care about." You know, they're asking questions about the two natures. They're asking about, you know, sort of the, you know, these sort of matters about the, the Trinity, which I think are all, we'd all agree, are very super important questions. But James Cohn is saying something like, yeah, but what, you know, these are probably aristocratic, and I know that, that John can probably talk well, about this. I think this. that would be that actually the, the Eastern Orthodox Church would probably agree with James Cohn more than they would agree with Latin Christianity. Okay, yeah. That they're asking, you know, they're asking very different questions than, than the oppressed, you know, uh, would ask. Well, I mean, they also show up saying, hey, look, this is a scar I got from being persecuted here. And, I, you know, somebody, so, I mean, well, I, yeah, I thought they were the oppressed that. at Nicaea. Yeah. There is they that. had just ceased being oppressed. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess the point is, though, is that, you know, I don't know. It just seems like 
whatever it is that Jesus is, is, is teaching, it has something to do with, um, you know, embodying an alternative ethic that just runs so counter counter to, to the world's structures and systems that, I mean, God, you know, and then Tom's point's well taken. It's like, well, you know, if he was a Christian, if he was saying all this stuff in the name of Jesus, then lots of people would have got baptized and, and all these different things. But it's like, but the fact is, is that like over 390 million Indians were freed from, and here's the, and here's another complexity. For, for Gandhi, he's saying, hey, guess what, guys? It's the Christians who are oppressing us. The British Christians. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. It's the British Empire. It's the, in the it's, name of Christ. In the name of Christ. Because they're doing it as a kind of evangelistic tool. Yes, exactly. And so, right, and so here's a guy who spends his life saying, I'm not, no, we, we should, we want to be free. We're, we can't, we're Indians and we can't even go, there's places in our own country that we're not even, well, we can't go. So that maybe for Gandhi, uh, whatever level of Christianity he he's accepting, it's on the order of Kierkegaard uh, rejecting the Christianity, a Danish Christianity. He's not. It's not clear what he's left with. Maybe in the same sense that Gandhi's rejection of Christianity has it through the British Empire leaves him with with uh, this kind of anti-colonialism, which. In, in, in a sense, is his version of Christianity. But I guess the, the counter-argument is that, in some way, that what we're claiming is that, it, that what is missing in, in Gandhi is a fellowship of believers in which there is... I mean, in, in saying this, I think you still want to, to be able to point to and say... You know, we talk about the love of Christ and the, the love of brother, the, the, the fellowship, uh, that, uh, that we're claiming that there is this transformation that takes place in a point of near fellowship, which is the sacrament, mm-hmm. isn't it? In the end, when we say sacrament, we're really saying that we are co-participants in Christ in this, you know, what, what, the, the idea of a fellowship of the body of Christ. But even having said that, shouldn't we be able to give a concrete depiction of the reality that that involves? That would it be inclusive then, and, and we could say, well, here, as Jesus says, they'll know you by your fruits. Mm-hmm. And, and if it's not there in the ethical product, if, if you're still, uh, you know, a, a violent, uh, warlike. Uh, if you're still a Calvin, burning people at stake. At the stake, there's no. In other words, I think the conversation. What the conversation is right there revolving around is to say there has to be fruit. Uh, to it, isn't that a very Christian claim? I would think so, and I mean that's the confusing thing to me as someone who didn't grow up in the church. I mean, I've been a Christian now for like 11 years, and. I, I just know, you know, many Christians that I know, they just, you know, ironically, like, they just flat, like, reject a lot of the teachings of Jesus. <laughs> like, they just, they just do. 
you know, they say, well, I know Jesus said, you know, to love your enemies, and they talk to you for 30 minutes about, you know, all the reasons why you shouldn't do that. And so at some point, I'm like, well, what does Jesus mean by love your I mean, we talked about everything he doesn't mean now for a half hour, but, like, what does he mean? So they have a theology that enables them to not be followers of the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. Their theology is such that, in fact, it detaches their ethics from the ethics of Christ. And that that's not unusual. That is just that is a Protestant. And not but not only that, not only that, that just like sort of lets them off the hook to do I mean they, they're doing evil in the name of Jesus. Right? That's where the demonic is unleashed, is that it's not just sort of a failure to do the good. It's like, no, actually they're doing evil in the name of Jesus. And so Who's the idolater? Gandhi? Who's doing good in the, in the name of the, you know, right? And that's, you know, this is like David Bentley Hart's point, I think, you know, in like the experience of God where he's running down, and we can talk about the, maybe some of the failures there, but he's running down this, like, the commonalities that exist in between the great religions of the world and saying that, you know, all the religions of the world teach that God would have, in order for him to be worthy of the name God, which, you know, Jonathan can definitely, you know, talk to or talk about is that he would have to be a God that's good and, and you know, and, and a God that's uh, love and, you know, a God of truth and all these different things, right? So that all the world religions sort of, like, agree about that. And so Gandhi talks about, you know, obviously he's an, he's an intellectual, he's he's reading the Bible, you know, he's reading the, the you know, the, the, the Gita, you know, he's reading all those sort of, you know, texts and, you know, talking about whatever that light, you know, that Tolstoy talks about the kingdom of God is within you, so whatever that light, that inner light that, you know, that we have, that we're made in the image of God, that uh, that Gandhi is, is, I guess, to the best of his ability, you know, trying to live out, but the one thing that he's not willing to do is to do evil in the name of God. But that's just sort of runs rampant, he, I think, in a Protestant, or maybe not just even limited to a Protestant context, that, that it's very confusing for someone like me who, who's trying to figure this thing out. I guess that I'm assuming that Tolstoy is a kind of religious pluralist. Gandhi's clearly a kind of religious pluralist. Yeah. Uh, that that is Hinduism and Buddhism. That all roads lead, you know, that the all the paths lead to the to the. Actually, King too. I think um, if you if you read some of the later King, you know, the, the King as well is saying that hey, you know. Uh, Gandhi, you know, subscribed to the God of Hinduism, and you know, some people call him Allah, and some call him the, you know, Jesus, and you know, and and, and that might be problematic, right? Like I think from like, yeah, should be, you know. Well, I mean, it occurs to me that probably the question functions only when those are sort of the background options, and so maybe it is a, maybe it is a, itself a modernistic question that when you ask. Who's the better Christian that already you've made assumptions about pluralism or universalism or something along those lines? When uh, I mean, maybe those aren't the options. You know, maybe that's not the way it works. And I don't have the answers, but I think that as Christians, what you are driving towards is we have to be able to appreciate the life of Gandhi. As yeah. Christians, we have to be able to appreciate Gandhi's life. But maybe that's not a good start for larger claims mm -hmm. about what it means to be Christian and what it doesn't. And, uh, mm -hmm. Maybe that's not where we should start to that yeah. conversation. Yeah. 
I mean, now, with that being said, no, no, well, but I'm just thinking about what you said, and it's a good, I mean, obviously, as Christians, I really do think that we should be able to affirm and say, here was a great man. Yeah. Here was a great man who did great too. You know? yeah. uh, that's not problematic at all. Yeah, and, and I mean, and really, though, I do think that the more I'm starting to understand, you know, what Christian salvation must mean, I think that it, what it means is becoming more and more like yeah. God. And then, so whatever that, you know, theosis or however we talk about it. And so, and that is, and the way that you become more and more like God is to do the stuff that God did when he became a man to imitate yeah. his life. And, right? Well, because of the operative grace of God in our lives and then us cooperating with his grace as well. And it's quite a. I mean, there's things entailed in the Christian vision of theosis that aren't just good works. Which I, I'm not yes. hearing you saying that. I'm just trying to be clear for the yeah. for what, since we're recording. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, break it down. What else is involved? Uh, well, I mean, you know, I think that the theological virtues you have faith, hope, and love are given to us in such a way by operative grace that transform who we are as human beings, that reorient us, so that our choices that we make are less of just. Uh, good choices instead of bad choices, or good choices instead of a choice to do nothing, but they become choices that now God is directing towards a final end, which is Himself, and we can't do that. That's you know God is doing that in our lives, even though we are still making you know, in a limited way choices that God has set the conditions and end for. And uh, so that that's describing theosis. And I think in another way we can just look at Gandhi and say, well, perhaps, you know, there's a bit of mystery to this. How does this man exude holiness? I mean, he lived a holy life. There's, I don't think there's any problem with saying that. And he loves with the love of God as described in Scripture. Uh, you know, there's no doubt about that. And I, I wouldn't even, you know, I don't really have trouble about when we think of, final judgment type of stuff with Gandhi just let God sort that out but here's a holy man I'm not too worried about Gandhi yeah. um, and so I think we can even learn from him but to, I just think that we shouldn't build from somebody's life example that may be uh, an exemplary life yeah. and say well that must be you know, salvation has to work to fit this I'm willing to call that the mystery and use the tradition and scripture and a, a more standard reading to build the systems of salvation and what it means to be Christian. And Tom and I talked about this, you know, and it's like, what, you know, if someone were to ask me, you know, who should I, who should I imitate? You know, if I really want to be, you know, a good Christian, who should I imitate? And I could say, well, there's a Hindu guy that you could really imitate and be a real, you know, and, yeah. and, and, you know, and then there's, you know, there's Mother Teresa, mm -hmm. I think. Let's talk about the 20th century. You got Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, who might, you know, who might be in that conversation. Uh, are we running out of, you know, there's there's only a couple slots there, I think, that, that can sort are of... Are you going to put Martin Luther King Jr.? I would like to put Martin Luther King now, but clearly he had some very, you know, failings that were very sort of... Uh, but that's which Gandhi may have too. Which Gandhi may have too, but that doesn't negate him. The New Testament point isn't, though, that when somebody asks us that question, we should be able to say, well, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So that I think our tendency is to make saints out of people. And a name that came to my mind is Dorothy Day, but that's the last thing she wanted mm -hmm. was to be made a saint of. Because it is, I mean, I think our holiness has to 
in some way come from just the ordinariness of life. So not yeah. very many of us live lives like Gandhi, but that doesn't make our lives, that doesn't take away from the capacity for us to be holy. Mm-hmm. Well, that's part of my problem with King's statement is, okay, well, what about Burt Smith? What about Carl Miller? What about people that no one's ever heard of? Yeah, King's obviously who, being, you know, he's using, uh, sure. he's being rhetorical. Yeah, he's right, making right, great right. use of somebody that's well-known. Right. I think you're right. That's, the statement in itself is functioning in a way that's very powerful. And King was a great orator. Mm-hmm. But, you know, theologically, we should just be able to look to the people around us. And there should be people in our congregations that you could say will imitate them. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and I don't think, I think that, I mean, hopefully, you know, people don't look at, like, my life and say, well, you know, Matt was a good guy, you know, but this one thing mm-hmm. in his past or whatever sort of negates his thought, it yeah. negates his sure. life, yeah. it negates, it's like, yeah. that's not, we can't do that, and it's like, so obviously Dr. King, yeah. uh, I think, had some, some failings, and, and, and I think so did Gandhi, and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and even Mother Teresa had the, her, her nights of the soul, mm-hmm. and was very, you know, yeah. sort of, you know, there's, there's going to be stuff, I think, with everyone, but we can't say, you know, that that in any way sort of negates... But my goodness, you know, King leads the <laughs> movement to insegregation yeah. in the I mean, it's unbelievable. And it, and it is unbelievable. I mean, it's it's telling that these guys are, are reading Tolstoy, yeah. who, is, who, is, who is making a clear departure, or at least trying to, from an institutionalized Christian religion. And isn't the depart- departure with Tolstoy, King, Gandhi... Uh, Dorothy Day, you know, you just go right on down the line that they all come to a realization of nonviolence. Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer. That that what there seems to be an essence to the the uh, the models that we were holding up, maybe uh, that what they they come to is a peaceableness mm-hmm. uh, that is over and against the violence. Of, of the world, and so maybe in a sense there is no gospel that is not a peaceable gospel, or a, there is no gospel that embraces violence. Is that too harsh? Well, that would be, I mean, a peaceful, that would be good news indeed. This is a forging potter's pot. Yes! What better news is there than, you know, that there's no more violence? And I think that's the problem with religious pluralism. I mean, I you know, it, it, this is this is kind of the understanding, and I think the failing of religious studies is that religion, as a category unto itself, is not really a legitimate category. That all religion is, and in this, I think Schopenhauer and others are correct in regard to everything other than Christianity. That what religion is is a projection of ours onto a deity. And so what you get in religion is not anything different than what you get in humanity, either in the degrees of badness or the degrees of goodness. So to talk about religion as either salvific or that, that's kind of beside the point. The, the point is, is you know, what, what is the status of human culture? And you can't, in some categorical way, come and say culture is damned or culture is... Because culture is itself undergoing, I presume, the transformation of you know, the cosmos, that what is being saved is in part 
when we all that culture is is people and and their interaction with people and so part of what is being saved is uh, has to do certainly with the way in which we've all been enculturated and what comes with that then you can't if you can't separate religion out from that uh, then also what is being saved is that religious element uh, not to say that there is something salvific inherent in religion that's to miss the point but you know when we like when we're talking about Gandhi we keep referring to him as a Hindu yeah but the word Hinduism yeah. is an English word that is just to say the religion of India uh, there, there really is no singular Hindu mm -hmm. religion. Uh, is there a singular Christian religion? Well, that's the. And how would you answer? <laughs> well, I mean, that was the, that was my point. You know, I was having this conversation with someone uh, the other day, and that, and so let me pose the problem in a different way. It's you know, was Gandhi a false teacher? Was he an idolater? Was he a right that this person said? Well, I mean, he, you know, uh, he's a false teacher. He's not teaching. He's not preaching Jesus. So he's a false teacher. The, and they're saying he would be a false teacher in as much as he's promoting uh, an answer other than that of, of Christ. Yes. And how would you respond? I mean, this is a tough one, isn't it? It's like, well, I'm trying to be orthodox, and I'm trying to, but I would say in terms of a life to... I would say in some ways, yes, he was involved in it. In some ways, he wasn't. That would be what? my answer. Because he's not pointing just to Christ. So as an orthodox Christian, I'm going to say that is a false teaching. But in some ways, yes, that he, he was. In the life he led, he was giving an example of some things that are Christ-like, and some things that are not. Um, so, I've, back to you know, maybe what John said that it is it's a it's somewhat mysterious with Gandhi, um, but I would say there's at least some of what Gandhi is saying that I, as an Orthodox Christian, would call false teaching. Now, there's a whole bunch that of John Calvin that I would call false teaching. So. And so who's closer? Well, I think that, to me, that's just not... <laughs> First of all, I think it's interesting that we're setting up, like, one of the greatest men that ever lived in Gandhi with maybe a fairly terrible Christian in Calvin. So I think we could do better in that comparison. But I understand why we're making the point. You know, well, that's what the comparison... <laughs> perhaps we should just get away from comparisons and... Uh, you were saying just a moment ago, Matt. I, who knows what Gandhi was, but we can at least say he's a part of God reconciling all things. Uh, Paul made a very radical statement the other day that I'm going to quote him on, and if I misquote him, he can uh, say what he said. Maybe we can say that all people are saved. Some are not, but God is reconciling all things. Everyone is saved, but some are not. Yeah. I mean, and, and in the statement, there is an inherent tension. The idea is that the picture of salvation in the scripture that is universal. By universal, it doesn't just mean all people. It means all things and all people. Mm -hmm. but, yeah, yeah. It, it is cosmic. It's a cosmic salvation. 
And so to talk about salvation in terms any in any other way than universal is to misunderstand the new the cosmic nature of the New Testament. And so I think that's step one. And then step two is to acknowledge that doesn't mean we quite apprehend the way in which this cosmic salvation is working itself out. Because we can point at people and 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 even using a, a biblical you know, measure that there are those who are not saved, even. Right. And, and so all are saved, but some are not. And so, in a sense, the idea is well, that, that's a, almost a contradictory statement, but in, in fact, uh, the, the tension in the statement is kind of what we have in the New Testament. I like it. I mean, I, I like I like it. It is right. I mean, I, I you know, and, and it is paradox. And I don't want to go. And I like Jonathan said. It's like I'm not trying to like you know compare, but 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 I am saying something like, okay, well, who's more of a false teacher, a preacher who doesn't ever preach the Sermon on the Mount, or preach an alternative kingdom, or pre, you know all these different things we've been talking about, uh, or, or or someone who is a Hindu, who seems to be. Living out the teachings of Some Jesus. Some of the teachings. Which do you, I mean, I don't know which ones he wasn't. I mean, he was, you know, you know, I, I really don't. Well, I would say Christianity is is we've ignored the Sermon on the Mount for far too long, but it's more than just the Sermon on the Mount, right? And are we in agreement with that or no? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, you know, if. If someone doesn't buy into the the deity of Christ, um, the incarnation, the resurrection, uh, that's a that should be a problem. It, At it, least historically, it's, 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 for the church, it, it, it is it is a problem. But what I'm saying is is like so. What is it? Is is how are you saved ultimately? And like, what does that look like? Is it are you saved by believing the right things about what the church has? Is taught historically about the person and work of Christ, and I'm not trying to set up a false dichotomy, but I'm saying, but you're saved in the real sense, though, of participating in good works. Like you, you know, what I'm saying, so you can you can subscribe to a bunch of different doctrines, and and I guess make sure you're lined up in, in the right way. But those beliefs live. matter in changing me, there and my participation in the church matters in changing me. And my participation in baptism matters in changing me. And my participation in communion matters in changing me. And yes, there are tons and tons of Christians that are not doing that. And I get that. But that doesn't mean that that is wrong. That that's not sure. what we should be doing. Yeah. Just because there are some that, that are doing it poorly or not at all. Yeah. And I think that's the tension that, you know, the, yeah, it's kind of a silly thing to say, well, who's the better Christian? But, I mean, yeah, there's a bit of silliness there, but I think that there, there is a kind of vast confusion when we begin to look at the sort of Christianity that we're surrounded by. People who are confident in their salvation, arrogantly confident right. in the evil that they do, you know, was this Pascal that says there's no one who does evil more joyfully than those who do it in the name of God. And I'm afraid we're, we're surrounded by a Christianity 
that is in fact participating in a joyful you know, kind of evil because they imagine that they have justification in doing it because they're doing it in the name of God. They're doing it in the name of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so there, that, that's, the, that's the crux of this thing. Uh, it's not really about Calvin or Gandhi, but Calvin and Luther represent uh, a, you know, a near majority of Christians, mm-hmm. uh, at least in this, in, you know. Well, actually they don't. Okay. Uh, uh, not even close. <laughs> in the United States. Uh, not even in the United States. There's 72 million Catholics in the United States. I think there may be, like, total 30 million Protestants, and that's, that's a stretch. Well, what is the population of the United States is 200 million, right? Mm-hmm. It's 350. Huh? I think it's closer to 350. 350? Yeah. I think so. And, but I'm not saying that Roman Catholicism is in any better shape in regards to the problem that we're depicting. I mean, that's the whole move of Protestantism. Right. Is against a, a Roman Catholicism that had clearly become corrupt and evil, and had clearly figured out and given the Church its doctrines uh, about uh, right, and at least in some ways about Christ and about God and about the sacraments and all these different things. So, you know, they they established like the Orthodoxy or whatever, and then we're having orgies, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, at the top, I mean, so again, I mean, that's the history of the people in power, right. not the history of the laity. Right. No. And so there's this kind of confusion that we that we're faced with, and that is what is the you know uh, effect of Christianity? Is it is it uh, is it effective in bringing about salvation in any in any discernible real world sense for most people? I would say no for most people. Is that wrong? I mean, for most people, it doesn't seem to really, at least it may have a small circle. I mean, I appreciate you guys. I know yeah, that. Yeah, well, for you guys. You I know. think uh, that's, you know, we just did recently a podcast on a secular and where we're at. Yeah. In the West, so even our theology are secular theologies. And we've kind of, we're, we're, we believe there's this, and we don't, but, you know, this, right. Americans, we sort of believe there's this empty space and um, where anything goes and we don't we're not thinking in terms of being Christians and then you've got the people in this country who want to say no that space should be inhabited by Christianity but what they really mean is their brand of American civic religion and which still they just have misunderstood where they're at in history so I think it is kind of a result of I think you're right in saying it's a result of Reformed and Lutheran theology that emphasizes individual salvation and individual internal salvation, uh, you know, rather than a salvation that is worked out in community. And the, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to. was actually directing this at you. Oh, you keep you keep bringing up sacramentalism, mm-hmm. but isn't in this discussion sacramentalism precisely the problem? But that is that it's a false understanding of the church's sacraments that leads to the corruption. But it's the false understanding. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I'm not. I'm saying let's have both right understanding and right action. 
that's the goal we should be looking for. So we can look at Gandhi and say, yeah, he did a lot of really good things. But ultimately, he's not our goal. Jesus is. And I suppose that if you're a Christian, that inherent in that belief is that a profound faith, a depth of faith, and a depth of transformation of action, of, of real-world fellowship and commitment, I, I guess that what we believe is those two things must not be separate. That is, a deep understanding brings about a deepened participation in God. Yeah. And even for, I mean, for Jesus himself, I mean, he says that the highest that you can go is to love God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your life and all of your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, Jesus himself says that's the furthest that you can go. That's the highest that you can go. Right? And so it's like, I guess, you know. It means being a servant to all. It means being a servant to all, yeah. And I think that it's like, well, if we find it, you know, in Tom, which I, you know, I do, or, or, or John, or Gandhi, or whoever it is, it's like, that, you know, in other words, I think that love of God is the highest, and love of neighbor is the highest. So, in as much as you're able to lay your life down and embody that sort of peaceable, you know, ethic, it's like, I think you're onto something. You know, and and, and and I wish that it was. I wish that it was all in the, you know, all done in the name of, of Jesus. But what scares me is is that there, I know a lot of Christians too who have all the right boxes checked, and they would say, oh, they, they could run down the incarnation and the two natures and Nicaea and all these different things, whatever it is. And it's like, but they're pro war, they're pro death penalty, they're they're evil, they're evil. And uh, I guess that this is sort of Kierkegaard's point, but maybe this is the big point. And maybe this is Dave Bentley Hart's point also. That in a sense you can look at the good old days of paganism. That in a pagan universe, that there really was not the possibility of somebody jumping up and saying, oh, let's change up the whole system like a Marx or, you know, a fascist uh, Hitler or a that is, that in paganism, they lived within the parameters of certainly a false understanding, a false religion that bound them. Nonetheless, the, that in some way, the, the, their very, the very nature of their religious misunderstanding was constricting. So that in a Kierkegaardian sense, that Christianity unleashes the demonic. In, you know, Jesus says that he could that the, the idea is that he's going to change the world. And what you get in the false understandings subsequent to that, if the, the field has been cleared. We've gotten rid of all of the paganism. And so what you have is either a kind of raw uh, you know, misunderstanding of Christianity, I, which I would, I would say that's certainly Marxism, that's various forms of fascism. Uh, that, but in, in this sense, it's an unleashing of the demonic that is, in fact, a worse evil than simple paganism. Rescue us, Tom. Surely we can't be left. <laughs> you guys are on your own. <laughs> <laughs> I have been encouraged this week. This is slightly off topic, though. Uh, there was a Gospel Coalition article about um, 
the the problem of American civil religion. And it, I mean, it, it looked like it could have been written by any of us here today, and it came from the Gospel Coalition. I thought, wow, this is this is good. Uh, I don't, I didn't know the author. It wasn't. I'm like, I know Keller's, Tim Keller's involved with the Gospel Coalition, but it wasn't him. And then uh, Russell Moore from the Southern Baptist wrote an article similar to that. Um, that, uh, and it, it. I don't know that he went completely to nonviolence, but he was closer than any Southern Baptist I know to getting to nonviolence and pointing out the. Can a Southern Baptist believing in penal substitution arrive at a gospel of nonviolence? Yeah, and I don't know where Moore is on that. I know where the Southern Baptists are on that. I don't know where he is on that. Um, but if. Uh, he, if they're taking this, even if they're getting to the step of, hey, nationalism might be a problem for the church, then hey, let's get behind them. Say so, yeah, let's. Now go further, but that's a good start. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is maybe God's doing some things. Yeah. And people in those places are starting to go, wait, this is something's wrong. James McClinton was a Southern Baptist. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't believe in penal substitution, but <laughs> yeah. well, he couldn't be a Southern Baptist today. Or yeah, nobody really just made that a, a sticky point. But I think it's a good unless discussion. they cross their fingers, like we talked about earlier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think that all of us are obviously in agreement that you know that the that Jesus is uh, God incarnate, and that you know that's. And as much as we know Christ, you know, we, we can know God in the fullest sense, you know, specifically Christ crucified, you know, but I do think that there's a tendency um, to exclude and to, and, to, and to sort of make judgments, you know, or to, uh, maybe cast people out of the canon. And just to me, it's, it's, it was a pleasant surprise coming. If you read, you know, if you read something like that, if you read stuff, you're like, wow, that's actually really good. We can confirm that. That's some good stuff right there. Doesn't seem to have a uh, powerful part of the body. So that a Gandhi may bring us closer to Christ.